0: the play and i'm nick perez <clears throat> alex a federal appeals court ruled last week that an indiana public high school is allowed to perform their annual christmas spectacular
1: that's just in time for easter Yes. Yeah, all right, right. <laughs> i'm alex flood and i'm an evangelist for the lake phelan church of christ located in saint paul minnesota
0: And I'm Nick Perez, the Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California, and this is Swordplay. On this episode of Swordplay, 3rd John.
1: Well, Nick, 3rd John is, uh, to me, a little bit easier to handle than 2nd John. What do you think?
0: Definitely a change in tone, change in mood. Um, While you do have kind of the dark spot in the middle with this fellow named Diotrephes, we'll talk about him Um, For the most part, it is a much lighter book. Um, And also, in addition, it's the shortest book of the Bible.
1: Word for word, right? Just by sheer word count, yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. Let that be a reminder to our audience that they should go read the letter. And since it's so short, read it three or four times it'll only take you less than 10 minutes and then you can come back and listen to our thoughts and questions and see what you think about the letter of 3rd John also for our audience be sure to check out our website at swordplay.rocks.cast that's swordplay.rocks.cast also you can find us on Google Play and Apple iTunes uh, also be sure to like us on iTunes and that'll help us get the word out about the podcast feel free to repost any of those links to your social media pages and that would help us out well Nick what's our first question today
0: well how about this who wrote third John um, we could probably start there
1: uh, let's see looks like we have somebody named the elder That's Who's right. the elder <clears throat>
0: Well, I. This is similar to our discussion last week on Second John. Um, well, there are different theories out there about who the elder is. Um, I operate under the assumption that it was John the Apostle who wrote all of the Johannine literature: John, First, Second, Third John, and Revelation. And so, and he, the history, <clears throat> the church tradition is he was a bishop of the church he was a uh, uh, an elder a shepherd over the lord's church so uh, that's who i see here
1: what tr- you- what church was he an elder at Ephesus 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 uh, i find that pretty interesting because that's over in western turkey modern day western turkey and uh, in that area you have a lot of churches popping up that you see in the book of Acts when Paul's doing his missionary journeys. So maybe uh, we'll mention that a little bit, but I agree. We mentioned last week Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers of the uh, first half of the second century, so around the 130 AD mark. He quotes from uh, John's epistles. He attributes it to the Apostle John, so that's a very close early source reference. I think if if you're just reading the letters, you'll see that the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all sound very, very similar. I think you could make a case they are written by the same person. And if you link that back to the Apostle John through Irenaeus, then I think you have a solid case.
0: So that's the author. Let's talk about who he wrote to. And the fellow's name is
1: Gaius. Gaius.
0: Um, What do we know about this guy?
1: Who is he? Well, I hadn't thought a whole lot about it before, but as I looked into it just a little bit, I found that there is another Gaius in the Bible and he's mentioned in Romans chapter sixteen, verse twenty-three. Now, this is somebody that Paul says uh, is with him, his his host. He's a host to the church, and he gives his greetings to the church in Rome. So that's pretty interesting because the name Gaius uh, is Latin for the it means rejoice. Uh, so if he's Latin, he's likely got a Roman background, and maybe that explains his connection to the church at Rome. But it sounds like if this is the same Gaius as Romans 16.23, then we have a church leader, a church house leader, somebody who is maybe a little bit more wealthy off, able to host a congregation in his home, Uh, somebody who knows the Apostle Paul. If this is the same one, that means he also knows the Apostle John. And uh, tradition holds that Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans while he was at Corinth. So there's a possibility that Gaius might be one of the house church leaders in the Church of Corinth, since that's who Paul says that he was with when he was writing the letter. So I don't know. What do you think, Nick?
0: Yeah, there's uh, just—and I would missed the Romans connection, so well done. Um, Thank you. Uh, We know so little about him. Um, In in terms of uh, 3rd John, what we know is he was... uh, John says he's the beloved Gaius, or um, another translation says, dear friend. And um, so uh, just very little to go on except that John knew him, and knew him very well, and uh, loved this brother deeply. Uh,
1: So yeah that's that's what I see here with Gaius absolutely and you know if John is an elder at Ephesus and Gaius is a house leader house church leader in Corinth, that's uh kind of in the same geographical area hmm. so it might make sense why John would be uh writing to churches in that area if especially if he's one of the last living apostles right
0: no yeah that's that makes sense um
1: well, Nick, as we dive into the letter. I have a pretty interesting question for you from verse 2 because Paul says he prays that Gaius would prosper in every way uh, in good health just as his soul prospers. Now when I read this, my mind goes to the idea of the health and wealth gospel. Is this a health and wealth gospel prayer that we should be praying for all of us to financially prosper, to in physically healthy, prosperous life, and to correspond to all the prosperity we have in our souls. What do you think?
0: Oh, absolutely. We need to be millionaires rolling around in Rolls-Royce. Jesus rolled around in a Rolls-Royce. Didn't you know that? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, you know, what What I found interesting is that this is similar language to other contemporary letters of that day. That was just a was kind of a general well-wishing in all things. um, I see. And and, and health as well. Um, So, you know, um, something that might sound similar today, I hope this letter finds you well, okay? Maybe something like that uh, in a contemporary sense. What I find interesting is this this would be the text to go to for a text concerning praying for people's health. I pray that you may enjoy good health, right? Sure. Um, It's funny that we go to James chapter 5 though for that, a text which is notoriously tough, but um, what I think about here is what if this prayer, not just for good health, but, but even as your soul is getting along well, or as it goes well with your soul, what if we were to incorporate that kind of prayer in with our prayers for good health? We pray for people's health all the time. We, when we get together and we take prayer requests, um, the majority of them are going to be about health issues and health concerns, and this person is sick, and that person has this disease. But what if we also prayed not just that they may enjoy good health or that the Lord would restore them to good health, but that even their soul would get along well? Um, that things would be well with their soul. I think we miss a powerful aspect of prayer mm. when we just hyper focus on the physical and don't really focus that much on the spiritual. Does that make sense?
1: I think that brings a bit more of a balance to the prayer. Uh we are more we are multifaceted beings, aren't we? We're not just physical, but we also uh we have a mind, a body, a heart, a soul. Um whether these are individual components, you know, that can be separated out or not, it's just we're we're complicated beings, and we there's a lot to us, and it's more than just being physically healthy. And so I think bringing in that just as your soul prospers, I don't I don't know, Dig Nick, do you even think that that's uh, somewhat of a of a parallel, like saying um, one goes with the other?
0: I don't see why not, because just like you said, and I, I preached on this earlier this year about <clears throat> we are not just material machines or physical animals. We have a soul, and, and again, I think we accentuate the one to the neglect of the other sometimes. maybe I don't want to speak in too general terms here, but look, uh, bodily health... We we are concerned about that, but we also need to be concerned about our spiritual health. John was concerned about Gaius's physical health, you know, and pray that you're in good health, but he was also concerned about him spiritually and his spiritual health, and so both of these are, are vital components if we are indeed not just physical beings but spiritual beings, and so we are.
1: I like that. I like that. Well, what other thoughts do we have here?
0: How about uh, verse 3, where he says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Um, What is going on here with this your truth business? Um, Is this kind of a a relativism type thing, your truth, my truth type thing? What's true for you may not be true for me, or is something else going on here?
1: It does initially look somewhat like what we call modern-day relativism, that uh, what's true for you is true for you, but it might not be what's true for me. When I look in the original language on here, you have, uh, when it says, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. In the Greek, it's actually your the truth, Mm. which is, as you said last week, uh, I like what you said, it's bad English, but it's good Greek. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, that is how you are walking, in truth. Obviously, John uses the term truth, I think, in multiple ways, and it's always a major theme in all of his writings. But what I would call this is that your truth is actually how you are exemplifying the truth in your life. In other words, your truth is what are you doing with your Christianity that can be seen around you. What are you doing for the brethren? What are you doing in the world for Jesus? And what the answer is, is what John would call your truth, your exemplification, your living out of the truth. In other words, uh, it's your truth walk. In verse 5, he says, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers. And I think that whatever you accomplish is talking about his deeds. Your truth-walking is equivalent to the good deeds that you are doing because of the truth that you have in Christ Jesus. So I think it's uh, more of this living, dynamic uh, exemplification in one's life based off of the unchanging truth that we know about Jesus Christ and our salvation in the gospel. What do you think, Nick?
0: No that's on point um, especially the that word there testified the brothers came and testified to your truth there's a right. testimony to bear here concerning Gaius and that is they saw something right They were exactly and the report is a, is an excellent one um he's a spiritual pillar John he's he's doing good work for the kingdom there and and so um yeah there's there's a manifestation here and these brothers saw it and and testified to it, um, to John. So, yeah, not necessarily a relativism thing, but um, a manifestation, like you said, of, of um, the truth of God's Word in the life of Gaius.
1: You could say that there's a relativism in how one lives out the truth. Not everybody's going to engage in ministry in the same way. Not everybody's going to accomplish the same deeds. So in that sense, it is relative to how you use what you've been given in service for the kingdom.
0: Fair enough. Um, What about, let's go down to verse 6 here. Um, these brothers, uh, though they were strangers, verse 6, they testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of the gospel. Yours uh, says the gospel? Oh, she, Scott, I'm sorry, worthy of God. Uh. A <laughs> manner worthy of God. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean to send someone in a manner worthy of God?
1: Uh, I don't know. You want to take a stab at it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know it's a beautiful thing when brothers, sisters, when they come together and and share in the common principles and the common truth of of God, and and that's what it looks like, what it sounds like, is going on here. These missionaries have come on their journey. I think that's what's going on here. Missionaries have come um, and. They, they should be fully supported. That's essentially what John is saying about them. Um, they are representatives of God, and so treat them like represent, re- representatives of God. Send them out as though they were Jesus Christ himself. Um, I think that's this manner worthy of God. It speaks to one of the major themes of this book, which is hospitality, how we treat um, Christians, even though we may not know them. Uh, personally, when we when we initially meet them, we should treat them as uh, fellow workers uh, in in the gospel. Still, something which is important today that doesn't go away just because we're two thousand years down the timeline of history. Um, faithful brothers and sisters, faithful teachers, faithful missionaries—they need our support. And if they're if they're walking in a manner worthy of God, we ought to send them in a manner worthy of God in
1: in their work. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and you know, I've been doing uh, more, more Bible study in the Old Testament as of late, and so when I read this verse, what immediately came to mind was the story of Abraham, and when God came down with a couple of angels and ate with Abraham, and so they, they met Abraham at his tent, and what did he do? He told Sarah to to make some bread cakes and he was, and to kill the fattened calf. And, uh, he went and got, uh, everything, everything ready for, for a nice meal. And he implored them to, to stay with him and eat with him. And they did. And it isn't until a few verses later that you see, yeah, the one who stays back to talk with Abraham is God himself. And so this is, uh, what I would believe to be a, pre-incarnate form of Jesus, the, the visible Yahweh, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament but this has a connection to verse 5 because when he says, the brethren uh, you're acting faithfully for them especially when they're strangers. Nick, do you remember what Hebrews 13:12 says?
0: That's the text talk about entertaining angels unawares?
1: That's right. Uh, be sure to practice hospitality uh, for some even to strangers for some have uh, unknowingly entertained angels. And like you have, to me, I think that's got to bring back that story of God and the angels coming down before they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah to eat with Abraham. And then God gives him the heads up on what he's about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think there is a little bit of a connection there. And then of course you see in, uh, the gospels, um, Jesus tells them to do the deeds of Abraham. If you're children of Abraham, then do the deeds of Abraham, right? So um, part of those deeds were hospitality and showing generosity to strangers. You know,
0: um, testify to your love uh, before the Church. You know, um, that's another key theme in this book uh, about how we demonstrate the love of God, the love of Christ for one another, that's, that's how we should treat one another today as well, um, from this place, from a heart of love. Absolutely. Um, Gaius didn't pick and choose when he was going to show hospitality or to whom he was going to show it, and we shouldn't show partiality either today. If people are, as I said earlier, if they're walking in a manner worthy of God... Um, then, then we ought to support them in a manner worthy of God.
1: Now, these people that they're worthy of support it says they go out for the sake of the name, and to me, that's an interesting phrasing there. For the sake of the name, do you have any thoughts on that, Nick? Um. Yes. All
0: right. So, whose name are we talking about here? Um, is this is this? Um, like an old testament reference you get a few of those um talking about the name um there's the whole uh jewish tradition of hashem which is the name they wouldn't even utter the name in fact they came up with that word hashem in order to substitute it for like yahweh um so is that the name or is it jesus name above all names um and I, I'm, I'm persuaded to lean toward the latter just because this is 3rd John. Um, this is New Testament. And it seems as though Jesus has received everything from the Father. Um, that's what he says in, uh, what, John 3: that the sure. Father has given everything to the Son. Uh, So I'm inclined to see here that the one and only name in John's mind is the name of Jesus. Um, What do you say?
1: Uh, Well, we're studying through Deuteronomy on Sundays, and so to me this brought me back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 when he gives the Ten Commandments. So the Third Commandment, as you already uh, probably know, is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Mm -hmm. the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And in my research, what I found is that uh, taking the name of the Lord in vain is actually not focusing on anything verbal, on something you say, like whether you utter the name Yahweh or not. Mm -hmm. Um, This is actually the counterpart to Numbers chapter 6, verse 27, which says that the Levites are to place the name upon the Israelites and then the Israelites for their part they're supposed to take the name upon themselves and so it's viewing the name as like almost kind of like a physical object that is given to you and that you carry around with you and I would go so far as to even say that it's like an invisible tattoo because in the nations around Israel you have all kinds of idolatry where a normal part of their idolatry would be to have tattoos. And those occultic symbol, idolatrous names and uh, and symbols would be actually engraved on their skin. And that would be like a mark of their representation for that idol, a mark of their ownership to that specific deity. Well, God says, I put my name on you. And at the same time, you receive it, you accept it. And that's your mark of who you belong to, except the only way that other people can see it, since it's invisible, is that they have to look at how you live. So if you don't bear fruit, that's what that word means there. Uh, If you take the name in vain, it means fruitless. So if you don't bear fruit, not talking about perfection, but if you don't bear fruit with your representation of God as um, as his representative, then that is bearing the name in vain. And so if you jump over to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5 or chapter 6, his opening prayer that Jesus gives is, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, hallowed is old English. It means make holy. Mm -hmm. And so he's literally saying, make holy your name. Uh, Now, if God's people are the name bearers, Are the name imagers, the name representatives, then the prayer is essentially saying, uh, help us to make your reputation, to make your name, to represent your authority properly in a way that holds it up as holy for the community. So it's very much a statement of what are you doing action-wise in your life that other people can see that is building up a positive reputation for the name of christ for the name of god for the for the kingdom of god so that when people look at you they don't have to see the invisible tattoo or the invisible seal or imprintment of who you belong to because it's being manifested so strongly and everything that you say and do and so i think um, this is wrapped up in third john because third john talks a lot about the importance of the testimony that people have of your truth that you're walking in these Deeds that you are either doing or not doing these this fruit that you're either bearing or not bearing And so I think this has to do with that. So I guess going back into your first comments to me, it's kind of both going out for the sake of the name is You're going out because that's our job We go out as God's representatives to reclaim the nations to make disciples of all peoples and Part of that is to accurately represent who God is in his nature and character by what we say and do no
0: that's fair um John not only a Christian but good um Jewish man that he was had grown up his only Bible had only been the um the Old Testament and so uh yeah chances are he made a lot of connections there just in that one phrase the sake of the name um certainly to Jesus, but also, as you've shown, digging back into um, the sacred text of the Old Testament and, and, and bearing fruit for that name. Um, since we're in verse 7, I, should, I suppose it's time for us to tackle our tough text for today.
1: Tough text.
0: Should Christians accept money from unbelievers to do God's work? Uh, verse 7 says that these brothers went out... Um, They've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So yeah, should Christians accept money from unbelievers, non-Christians, to do kingdom work, do God's work? Um, What do you say, Alex?
1: There's a lot of questions here wrapped up in that one question. So for me, it's, it's like, who are these Gentiles that he's talking about? Is this like in general, like all Gentiles, or is there somebody specific or a specific group? And then what would they be offering, right? Are they offering money? Are they offering hospitality? Um, and, and what, uh, maybe they're offering some sort of truce to avoid persecution. Um, so I, I don't know, what are they offering? Also, why would they offer it in the first place? You know, what what incentive do they have? And uh, if there is something being offered, why would the believer not accept the offer? So To me, there's a handful of questions that I'm not sure I have the answers for, but I would say right off the bat, again, my mind is stuck in the Old Testament right now, so I go back to Abraham, and after Abraham rescues his nephew Lot and brings back the people from um, being captured in the war campaign of Catoleomer, Sodom and Gomorrah get sacked, um, so when he rescues them, which is him and his friend. Uh, what was his friend's name? Um, lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was uh, the Mamre, the Oaks of Mamre, That's right. And so Mamre and his brothers and in, in their household, right? They have um, just a handful of warriors, a couple hundred. Rescues his uh, nephew and family. <clears throat> but as he's. Freeing the people, the king of, of Sodom says, hey, uh, if you just give me back the people, you can have all the stuff, right? You can have all this money and property and the animals. And Abraham rejects it. He says, no, I don't want anything from you. But do you remember why he said he wouldn't take anything from him? No, I don't. Uh, oh, okay. He <laughs> said... <laughs> 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 He said, I know where you're at. This is yeah, what, Genesis 14? Right, right, 14. And I'm, I'm honing in on verses 21 through 24. Uh, Abraham says, I'm not going to accept anything from you at all, lest you say, uh, You have made me rich. Lest, hmm. lest people think that Sodom has made God's man, Abraham, rich. And so this was actually important to Abraham that the reputation of his God whom he represents, uh, would not be uh, mixed or uh, credit would be stolen or falsely attributed to anybody other than uh, the Most High God, anything other than Abraham's God. So I think what might be going on here is that if you have Gentiles who are, uh, unapologetic you know unrepentant for their idolatry and yet maybe they perhaps are offering some sort of piecemeal some sort of um truce or support saying you know what aphrodite is our goddess and uh, she's the goddess of love and john you talk a lot about love here and jesus seems like he he likes to to talk about love so how about um we be friends how about We'll give you some money, we'll uh, give you, you know, sanctuary uh, if you're ever in trouble. Um, we'll work with the political leaders to to help you join in our pantheon of other gods. And so as you can see, there's many temples here to many deities, and uh, I'm sure we can make room for Yahweh. Now, Nick, why would that not be okay?
0: Well, because... Um... There's only one true God.
1: <laughs> yeah you you don't want. It's not a, plus
0: who's behind all those idols as well. It's,
1: yeah yeah. There's there are demonic forces behind the idols. There's a cosmic war going on, and so you're not you can't as a representative of God offer a peace treaty with the other gods <laughs> and their representatives. And so in in other words, how does this apply today? In my mind here, to me, the way this applies is if you're going to be in a situation where people can uh, manipulate or uh, take our God, Yahweh, to take the Lord Jesus, to take him down a notch and say, ah, you know, they're just another religious group. Or, ah, you know, they're just just another uh, deity. He's just another deity in the pantheon. If there's anything like that, then it's our responsibility to protect the reputation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom and to make sure that there is no question in people's minds uh, where we stand, uh, and that is with the one true God and not with uh, any other thing. So I don't know. I guess you might think about uh, you know, what if, what if the government comes and steps into place and, and offers some sort of money but with strings attached. You know what I'm saying? says, uh, you can have this tax exemption as long as you don't preach against homosexuality. You know, well, we have to pick our loyalties there. In that case, we wouldn't take money from the Gentiles, would we?
0: Well, and I think that some of that's even happened in, um, some of the Christian universities. I had an elder who would talk about that, that once the, these universities started receiving money from, uh, uh, the government, um, they started kind of softening some of their policies and some of their stances on certain things. Um, money has a way of doing that and it, whether it's uh, accepting money from these groups in order to um, and, and that calls into question their allegiance or whether it's receiving money and that calls into question their motives, right? Uh, that could be part of this as well. They. It, it might give Christians a bad name if they accept money from these unbelievers and the unbelievers start saying oh, I just did it for the money you know they're just sure. trying to get trying to get rich that's why I think verse 8 is so important therefore right what's that therefore look backward oh they haven't accepted anything from the Gentiles therefore we Christians ought to and there's indebtedness in that language in the language of oughtness we ought to support people like these we we take care of our own that's what John's saying that's a principle that's all throughout um, the New Testament. We we take care of our own. We watch out for our own. That's why we show hospitality, why we um, entertain missionaries who come, why we help them. Uh, we owe it to them. And oh, by the way, when we share in that work, we may be fellow workers for the truth. We we get to participate. We get to fellowship in, in the work that they're doing. We work together for the truth. That's what it's all about. So um i think that's that's uh all this comes under this idea of um uh, accepting nothing from the gentiles it it sounds like these missionaries as a policy they they didn't solicit from Um, non-christians and it sounds like they may not have even accepted it if they were offered i don't know but they certainly didn't go around panhandling to non-christians saying hey give me some money or whatever uh, they they leaned on and were supported by the church and and they ought to be because, um, as John says, their their uh, love and their stance with the truth and their manner worthy of God and all this factors into that. Yeah, they're 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 us. They're of us, and we ought to support them as though they are us.
1: And you know, Nick, even though there might be strings attached from you know, sources of, of support coming from unbelievers. Uh, there can even be strings attached and manipulation going on within the church and from uh, people who are wanting to be in control and to be in power, like this fellow here in verse 9 named Diotrephes. Nick, who is Diotrephes?
0: Uh, another thing, another another person where we don't know too much about him Um <clears throat> But what we do know is he's not one of the good guys. Um, Diotrephes, his name, by the way, means nourished by Zeus. That's what I found. Yep. Um, he likes to put himself in the first place, probably a church leader, or if he's not, um, he's certainly taken that for himself. <laughs> um but he does not acknowledge the authority of the apostolic college. That's how I read the hour there. Does not acknowledge our authority. Right, right. He he does not recognize the authority of the apostles. John has written something to the church. Was that Second John? Was that First John? Whatever it was, Diotrephes didn't want anything to do with it. Said, Bach, don't want it. Who is John anyway, right? Kind of that's how I read that, but... Um yeah, that's Diotrophes is a bad dude. He <clears throat> represents another major theme in this epistle, which is the theme of pride. Diotrephes, he sounds like a very prideful person. Um sounds like he refused to offer the hospitality to these Christians and set himself up kind of as a, a church boss, um, as a pope if you will. And he was saying who was in and, and who was out, and does not demonstrate true Christian leadership, which is not only void of pride, but accentuates and lives according to a principle of humility. Um, so uh, that's a bit about Diotrephes. What do you got on him?
1: Well, Nick, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting, because as I read about Diotrephes, and as I as I saw how he was cast in Third John as the opponent of Gaius, um, some things started to come into play here. I think there are some shadowing that John is using here, and here's why I'm coming with this. I think John is using Gaius as the uh, representative of Christ and how Gaius is shadowing Jesus when you look at Jesus in John's Gospel. And I think Diotrephes is shadowing Judas slash Satan himself as their representative, as that kind of spirit. And so here's why I think that, right? Um, First of all, uh, he accuses us unjustly with wicked words. Well, what does this accusing have to do with? It says he's not allowing, he's not receiving anybody, like showing the hospitality for those who have gone out in the name. And he's also not allowing anybody else to do that, and so this has to do with with, to, with money, I think. And if you go back in John's Gospel, uh, John chapter twelve, verses four through six, um, it talks about how uh, Judas was appalled; he was offended that this expensive perfume that was poured out upon Jesus was not sold for money, and then the money given to the poor, but it you get a little parenthetical statement by John that says, by the way, Judas doesn't actually care about the poor. He was just in charge of the money box, and he would pilfer it because he was a thief. (laughs) So Mm, so I wonder if there's something going on here where Diotrephes has worked his way up into some sort of uh, powerful position, which he probably shouldn't even be in, and it has to do with money. Uh, I think he is not wanting to uh, support those who go out in the name he doesn't want anybody else to support him and then he even has gotten somehow the ability to cast people out for doing so so there's something going on here regarding money but also uh, in the original language it says Diotrephes who loves to be first those five words in the english that's only one word in the greek right and the word is uh philo, uh, philo and. It is the only time that is used in the whole Bible, is this one spot. And it has a focus on controlling others. And it is the exact opposite of Jesus' example in John chapter 13, verses 10 and following, when he's washing the disciples' feet and he says, Do you realize what I've done for you? I have left you an example. I'm your teacher. You call me teacher, rightly so. However, if I have washed your feet, uh, this is how you ought to love and serve one another so i left you this example of service is Diotrephes being an example of service not at all Hmm. and in fact uh you look at that story jesus had already said that one of you uh, is not clean and so who was that person who was not clean it was judas but jesus still washed his feet (laughs) but just a few verses later, in, in verse 27 of John 13, it's going to say that Satan took over Judas. And so this is uh, worded a little bit differently in John's gospel than the other gospel. It says says, um, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, what does Satan's name mean? It, it means the accuser the accuser yeah. yeah and what is Diatrophes doing it says in verse 10 he is accusing us mm-hmm. and so you have this element of the accuser being brought in you have this element of greed and pilfery being brought in which also brings an element of uh who loves to be first so that's an element of control and pride and uh power play and manipulation and so if you look at that he's going to go on to say in verse 11 um Don't imitate what's evil, but what's good? The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil is not seen God. So you have this clear contrast being made between Gaius, who is doing good, and so he's of God, versus Diotrephes, who's doing evil, and so he's not from God. Then you have Gaius, who is bearing fruit through the testimony we know of other people. He's bearing fruit in his life. Uh, He is doing that exemplatory service unto others, like Jesus does in John's Gospel. Diotrephes, no, he's he's playing the part of Judas. He's playing the part of one who has been taken over by Satan. And so I think this is sort of a grand narrative going on in the background of the letter, which makes the letter, though brief, a little bit more intense, a little bit more of a cosmic battle going on. You got Gaius versus Diotrephes, which shadows Jesus versus Satan. And so it's almost like, it's almost like the letter is saying you need to choose sides like in verse 8 we ought to support such men pick a side pick the side of Gaius. pick the side of Jesus and then yeah so that's what I think
0: <laughs> um, and that that does kind of um, lead into you know just and we've again like we typically do we weave in and out with some of the application for today but specifically this with diatrophies, um, you know, should should one person ever be in charge of an entire congregation or, or have the highest power of an entire congregation? And you look out among churches today, and that's kind of the way it is. That's the norm, is you have the pastor, the lead pastor, the senior pastor, um, I'm not just in... Um, mainline Protestantism, but if you look at the Catholic Church, um, they have their priest and their bishops, and and then you have the Pope who's over the whole thing. Um, are those good models for church leadership? Um, and more importantly, do those models of leadership mirror what we see in, in the New Testament?
1: That's a good question, Nick. Uh, every time I see anything in the New Testament talking about elders uh, or overseers, pastors, shepherds, um, bishops, whatever, whatever you want to call them, there's a, there's, a, there's a handful of common denominators that are descriptors of their occupation, but they are the leaders, right? And as far as I can see, I find no example in which one guy is supposed to be the leader of the group.
0: And yet we have guys like Gaius, who, or and and we talked about um, the book of Philemon a couple episodes ago, and um, uh, you know the, these are guys who seem to have a position of leadership um, in in their particular house church because that's right. what they had in in the in the the first century church was house churches, and so it sounds like there were guys who. Um, were in congregations. They didn't have the elders in place or, or shepherds in place, and so they kind of acted as um, representatives for God, who served in this leadership capacity. I'm not saying it's it's necessarily the best way. I think the best way is for there to be uh, a plurality of elders who serve as shepherds, but. It seems like there are instances where an individual had this um, delegated authority. It may not have been ideal, but it, it was beneficial for the time. Now, unfortunately, there were there were guys like Diotrephes who caused the whole thing to get off the rails, and that's not sure. good. And and I think you see some of this today. With the current and modern church leadership model, which seems to be normative for just about every every church out there, where you do have the guy in charge, yeah, he may be under a board of elders or something like that, but it was just this last week I read an article about Bill Hybels. Have you been following what's been going on with him and the the allegations
1: against him?
0: No, um, I have no idea. What is it? He's he's been accused of uh, inappropriate advances and inappropriate uh, sexual activity with certain women, some of them on his staff at his church, um, Willow Creek Community over in Chicago, and with when you get a certain amount of power, there's just so much temptation um, that you know and bill hybels is he's he's a big name and he's not the only one by the way there's you know pick them. there's there's any number of these church leaders these church pastors who get into trouble and that's the temptation of leadership is the, the abuse of power absolute power corrupts absolutely and all that i think that's what happened with diatrophies and i think it's a it's a real temptation to any any leader in any position um in in the church specifically what we're talking about that um the devil never sleeps and and he's he's constantly on the prowl looking for someone to devour and and he's got his he's got his his claws and his teeth um sunk into diatrophies and and that's when that happens whether it was first century or 21st century it's a it's an ugly thing just as it's a beautiful thing when you have a brother like Gaius and these brothers these missionaries who are in cooperation with they have the spirit of of cooperation and brotherhood and fellowship just like that's a that's one of the most beautiful things this is one of the most ugly things when when it gets so uh, so so ugly and so crosswise here where you have a guy who uh, stops those who want to welcome the brothers. He refuses to show hospitality, and he puts them out of the church, kicking people in. He's deciding who's in and who's out. You're disfellowshipped because of this. Yeah, that's just It's an abuse of power all around.
1: Yeah, Nick, I think it's important to remember when we see Paul's letters to Titus and to Timothy that their job was to work themselves out of a job. They were there to set leadership in place, not too hastily, Paul tells Timothy, you know, there's no rush. You don't want to lay hands on somebody too too quickly who is not ready for leadership. But I think the evangelist is, is supposed to equip people to get that leadership put into place so that it's not just so that he himself is under that leadership for as long as he's there. That way you don't have this consolidated power into one person. As you said, uh, maybe that's just too much temptation. And I, I would agree, you have um, Paul warning the elders of Ephesus when he met him on the island of leaders in Acts 20, saying that I know that wolves will rise up from among your own selves. And so mm-hmm. if, if that's from among the eldership, then Paul might be saying that some of you will be tempted to, even in a plurality of eldership uh, of elders, might be tempted to abuse that power and to become a wolf. Uh, I think another uh, dirty little secret though, Nick, is that sometimes these guys have already hatched their plan before getting into a position of leadership. And so it, it wasn't a power that corrupted them. They were already corrupted wolves to begin with that put on the sheep's clothing, got their way in and, made it up to the top where they could execute their evil deeds.
0: Bad trees that bear bad fruit for sure. Um, all right, let's do, uh, there's a lot more could be said about this book. Sure, sure. But let's let's wrap up with final thoughts, Alex. What, what's one of the, the, the takeaways here that you're walking away with?
1: I would say the uh, takeaway for me is that what I do, not just what I teach, not just what I preach, even if I'm a teacher and a preacher evangelist it doesn't matter if that truth that I believe in and that I tell other people about if that is not manifesting itself in action if I am not finding the brother who needs to be clothed who needs to be fed if I am not finding the brother who needs some hospitality who needs some encouragement if I'm not using the financial resources, the gifts, the skill sets, everything, the whole thing, in ways that are active, visible, real, tangible acts of goodness towards my brother, then, unfortunately, I can talk about truth all day long, but it doesn't actually mean that I'm a truth walker and that I'm walking in truth. So that's what I take away.
0: I'm going to walk away here with uh, this verse 11 <clears throat> which kind of summarizes some of what we've been talking about where he says Beloved, do not imitate evil but imitate good. That word imitate by the way, we actually get our English word mimic from the original um, follow after the uh, spiritually and the morally beneficial and it's it's also a statement of um, faithfulness it's where it kind of started back in verse 5 it's a faithful thing you do and, and and faithfulness is kind of another major theme in this book. Um, don't take for granted Christian brothers and sisters who are faithful, um, and 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 uh, exemplify them and um, and and follow after their good example. He brings, you know, Gaius is an example, he'll bring up Demetrius, we didn't even talk about him, but he's another one there in verse twelve that he brings up. Right, right. Um, but when you imitate good. You're of God, um, but when you do that which is evil, you don't—you've never even seen God, right? You don't even—you you don't even know Him, okay? And and so, it's just such a such a high calling to holiness here. Don't imitate evil; imitate good. Um, don't follow the example of Diotrephes, but follow the example of Gaius, who, by the way, is following the example of Christ. And uh, again, what a what a noble and high goal.
1: Amen. Well, Nick, I'd call this another successful episode of Swordplay. Definitely. Well, just another reminder to our audience: be sure to check out our website at swordplay.cast. Uh, swordplay.cast at rocks, or is it that rocks at cast? Now I can't remember.
0: It's uh cast isn't it? I think that's what it is. Cast rocks, yeah, that's what it is.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. So swordplay.cast.rocks. That's swordplay.cast.rocks r-o-c-k-s also be sure to look up the name swordplay on google play and apple itunes for their podcast like us on the podcast leave a good review repost us on social media facebook twitter whatever you use and that will help us to spread the word and uh, widen the audience if you if you happen to like the podcast be sure to share any final thoughts nick
0: that's so uh, you you wrapped it uh, email address? Don't we have an email address?
1: Oh yeah, if you have any questions, email us at Swordplaypodcast at gmail dot com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail dot com. If you leave a question for us, we will answer it. We'll put it into the show and if we have a lot of questions, we'll even make an entire show just out of your questions. So be sure to let us know what you think at Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Swordplay.